Lord, thank you for this, uh, this church. Thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for the people here. Um, we thank you that uh, we can rest in the reality that you're more jealous for your glory here than any of us are. And as a result, we benefit. And we pray now that you would be jealous for your glory as the word is preached from Luke chapter 16. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey uh, with faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ariel Castro, uh, the man who was serving a life sentence and plus a thousand years for abducting three women and torturing them for over a decade, hung himself this week, one month into his sentence. He was seeking to escape justice. But if I could submit to you today, as a result of his unrepentant sin, he is just now facing justice. It's an eternal justice that he is facing. You know, you think about eternity. It's hard to wrap our minds around it because we're so time-bound. But one of the best descriptions I've seen of eternity comes from the pen of an early 20th century writer named James Joyce. And here's how he describes justice. It's a bit long, but I think you will get the point by the time we're done. He says, forever, for all eternity, not for a year or for an age, but forever. Try to imagine the awful meaning of this. You have often seen the sand on the seashore. How fine are its tiny grains. And how many of those tiny little grains go to make up the small handful which a child grasps in his play. Now imagine a mountain of that sand. A million miles high reaching from the earth to the farthest heavens. And a million miles broad extending to remotest space and million miles in thickness. And imagine such an enormous mass of countless particles of sand multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals. And imagine that at the end of every million years, a little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a tiny grain of that sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries would pass before that bird had carried away even a square foot of that mountain? Yet at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could be said to have ended. At the end of all those billions and trillions of years, eternity would have scarcely begun. And if that mountain rose again after it had been all carried away, and if that bird came again and carried it all again, again, grain by grain, and if so, and sank as many times as there are stars in the skies, drops of water in the seas, leaves on the trees, feathers upon birds, scales upon fish, hairs upon animals, at the end... Not one single instant of eternity could be said to have ended. Today, Jesus describes two men 
who enter eternity. One was prepared for eternity. The other lived his life as if this present life is eternal. And of course, Jesus continues to have in his scope the Pharisees. We saw last time the Pharisees' affections are set in the present age. They love money. They love the praise of men. They live to be justified before others. So he has in his sight the Pharisees and everyone who can see themselves in the Pharisees. Those who are affections are set in the present age. Those who are living their lives as if this life will be eternal. If that is you, this text is for you this morning. Now, the narrative begins with two very contrasting people with regard to how they are approaching life and the eternal age to come. Notice with me in verse 19. Now, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, although some have taken this to be a historical incident, that this actually happened in time and space, virtually no one believes that today. Virtually everyone today takes this to be a parable. For instance, if you look in chapter 16, he begins a very clear parable with the same language. Chapter 16, verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager. And so it's very likely that Jesus is describing a parable here. Now, this particular man, this rich man, was clothed in purple. Uh, purple was very expensive. Purple dye because it was hard to extract. It came from marine snails, okay? And so if you had purple clothing, uh, that meant you had spent a great deal of money on that. And not only that, he had fine linen underneath this purple clothing. And so the combination of purple dyed clothes and linen tells us that this man was a man uh, of luxury and extravagance. Now, sometimes this rich man is called Dives. Maybe you've heard his name um, described as being um, named Dives. But uh, that word comes from the Latin rich man. In all actuality, in this narrative, he does not have a name. He's just the rich man. Uh, his whole identity is bound up in the fact that he is rich. That's how we know him. Uh, his whole life is defined by his material wealth. But in verse 20, we see a second man. Notice with me in 20, it says that this hit his gate, which tells us he had an estate, was laid a poor man. This man has a name. Named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. In contrast to the rich man is this poor man. He just longs for some scraps from the man's table. These dogs were unclean animals and they licked his sores that he had, ulcers all over his body. Commentators kind of 
debate what this represents. I think it just represents the dogs treated him better than the rich man did. They say that dogs' saliva has medicinal value. They're taking care of him in a way that a human being is not even taking care of him. But it does show us his very difficult and helpless state. You know, what's interesting is he has a name. What's interesting about that is of all of Jesus' parables, this is the only character in all of his parables that has a name. So that tells us his name matters. The rich man has no name. He's just a dime a dozen millionaire. But this very poor man has a name, and his name is Lazarus. It's not the, to be confused with Lazarus from John 11, whom Jesus raised from the dead. He was a, he was a well-to-do person. His sisters, Mary and Martha, it was very clear that they were well-to-do. This man's name means something. The name Lazarus means the one God helps. Now, that seems counterintuitive. If I'm living in that day and um, I'm examining these two men's lives, I would have said the rich man was the blessed one. Don't we tend to to say that someone gets a raise or someone who lives in a, a beautiful home, we go, that person is blessed. Someone drives a very fancy car, that person is blessed. They're the blessed one. Yet Jesus seems to be indicating by the fact that this rich man has no name and the fact that this poor man has a name that God knows and his name means the one God helps. He seems to be saying this is the one who has the blessing of God on his life. That is so counterintuitive to us. He kind of destroys the whole health, wealth, and prosperity theology completely. And we see that that is indeed the case When they die. Because these two contrasting men go to two completely different yet ultimate places. Look with me in verse 22. It says, The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, this is just a parable, so we have to be careful about pressing the details. But from Jesus' description, there have been many people in church history um, who take this text... Uh, to teach us that Hades had two sections, all right? Now, this is not a dividing issue. It's hard to say. But there have been many who believe this, that Hades had two sections. There was a paradise part called Abraham's bosom. And then there was a, 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 a section, a portion of punishment, okay? And so you'd have two different sections of Hades... And it's believed by many that when Jesus came, died on the cross, was raised from the grave, and ascended to the Father, he, he uh, emptied out the paradise part so that today paradise is actual in heaven. And so that, as he tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, it's hard to say, and it's hard to set a, a, you know, a, a rigid theology based on this one parable. But there is one clear observation we can make. And it's quite clear. The rich man and the poor man named Lazarus both 
died. All right? They had completely different circumstances in their lives. But they both drank of the same cup in the end. They both died. You know, you think about it. After all the inventions, all the technological advances, all the the medicinal and medical progress we've made, there's one enemy that we cannot conquer. And that is death. You think about all the great men, all the great women in history, all of them end with this statement. He and she died. So you have two men here who have died. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the great leveler. Donald Trump will not have Trump enterprises when he dies. Death equalizes everything. And death will not tarry until you're ready. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful book, Practical Religion, says this. Death will not be kept out by moats and doors and bars and bolts. And there's a second observation here as well. There are only two destinies for those who die. There's only two destinies. For the believer, he or she goes on. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, Abraham was mentioned here, but Abraham is the great father of the faithful. He's he's speaking this to the Pharisees, to the Jews, and that's why Abraham is front and center. But to be... Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord with complete bliss. But for the unbeliever, to die is to be eternally separated from God in what verse 23 says, a place of torment, being in torment. Nothing has been said about the religious state of either person up to this point. But it's very clear Lazarus was a man of faith. Lazarus was a repentant believer. Okay? And, and it's interesting how it's described here when he dies. He, he, the angels, isn't this a glorious picture? The angels take him to Abraham's side. Literally, Abraham's chest, Abraham's bosom. All right? Many scholars believe this is a picture of a feast. He is feasting at the table with Abraham, perhaps even the Messianic feast. And to be at the host's side is to be in a place of honor. But nothing is said like this about the rich man or the former rich man. There's nothing said about what happened when his body is separated from his soul. It just says that he died. Third observation, how different are the conditions which God allots to people? There are people in this life who live very prosperous lives. Okay? They, they, they're able to fly all over the world and to stay in the great resorts of the world. To see the great and beautiful places of the world. They never think about balancing their checkbook. 
And then there are people, I've been to two third world countries in the last four months. They are truly wondering right now when they will eat again. They're wondering, will I eat today? Will my mom and dad be able to provide for us today? How different are the circumstances and the conditions which God allots to people? But this also reminds us that one's temporal condition, one's temporal situation in this present life is no test of the state of the soul. Okay? Here you have a man who obviously does not know God. His life is one of prosperity. Here's another man who obviously knows the living God and he has sores all over his body and he is begging for food. In fact, poverty and trial, now this is counterintuitive, countercultural, are seen oftentimes in Scripture as blessings in disguise. Because when you're poor and when you're experiencing trials, it, it, it kind of weans us off the world. And it teaches us to set our affections on the world to come. As Paul would say in Colossians 3, to set our mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Okay? And, and when you're poor and when you're going through trial, you're reminded that you're in a desperate place. Rich people, and who am I describing there? I'm describing you. I'm describing us. The poorest among us in here are among the top five wealthiest 5% wealthiest people in the world, okay? Rich people are inoculated to that. Uh, their, their wealth and their prosperity, their, their health, their creature comforts, they kind of mask the real condition. And the fact is, we are as desperate. The healthiest in here is as desperate as someone with stage four cancer. We're in a desperate place. And that's why the psalmist would say in Psalm 62, those of high estate are a delusion. Those of high estate, those who are among the elite in society and culture are a delusion. Think about this man here. The rich man, the former rich man. With all the riches he had, he now no longer had them. He did not have riches in heaven. With all the purple and all the linen, he was not clothed with the finest clothing, the, the, the robes of righteousness. With all the feasting that he did every day, he did not have the bread of life. In all actuality, in the ultimate sense, this man was poor. This man was tragically poor. With all the friends that he had, he had no advocate to the Father. And then you think about Lazarus here. With Lazarus, you have something completely different. Lazarus, in the most ultimate sense, though he had nothing in this present life, was rich. He was rich. He had no friends, but he had one ultimate friend, God was his friend. He had no good clothes, but he was clothed in righteousness. He had no bread to eat, but he had the living bread. He probably had very little to drink, pure water. He had the living water. 
He was rich. Best of all, he had these things forever. J.C. Ryle, again in his book, Practical Religion, says, The one may glitter like the butterfly in the sun for a little season and be admired by an ignorant world. But his latter end is darkness and misery forever. The other may crawl through the world like a crushed worm and be despised by everyone. But his latter end is a blessed eternity with Christ. Of him, the Lord says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. Now the point here is not that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. That's not the point. But the fact is, it is often the case that poor people and people who go through severe trial are better reminded every day of the curse on creation and our dependency upon our Creator. Uh, I was in Ghana uh, 11 years ago, one of the poorest countries in the world as well. And I was just remarkable at the spiritual receptivity of the Ghanaian people. I felt like Billy Graham. I mean, someone would, would uh, cough and I'd say, or sneeze, and I would say, God bless you, and they'd get saved. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and I was talking to one of their pastors, and I said, man, it is like pulling teeth to be able to share the gospel in America. Now, this guy had spent some time in America. He said, let me tell you the difference between Ghana and America. In Ghana, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying out of desperation, not just out of rote memory. In America, if you get hungry, you just drive down to the grocery store. We're reminded every day that there's a fall and there's a curse and that we need God. Okay? So that's where this man had been. That's why Jesus would say in Luke 6, you remember several months ago when we looked at the Sermon on the Plain, in verse 20 he says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. And then he goes on in verse 24 and says, Woe to you who are rich. Well, this former rich man, he's no longer rich in eternity. He recognizes the woe that is on him, which... Which shows us that immediately after death, okay, there is no soul sleep. There are certain religions that teach soul sleep that when you die, your soul just goes in a place of unconscious rest. That's not the case. It's not what the Bible teaches. This text indicates that immediately after you die, the believer and the unbeliever go to their respective places and there is a conscious awareness of your eternal state. There's a conscious awareness of your eternal bliss if you're a believer and your torment if you are an unbeliever. C.S. Lewis was once told about a, uh, a tombstone uh, where a, an atheist had been buried. And on the tombstone it read, Here lies an atheist all dressed up and no place to go. And C.S. Lewis responded, I bet he wishes that were so. Indeed, the rich man, the former rich man, was wishing it were so. And that brings him to the place of crying out 
We see two desperate pleas in verse 24, starting in verse 24. Notice in 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Abraham is the first and the greatest patriarch. He calls him father. It's not that Abraham was his spiritual father. Romans 4.11 makes that clear that only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is the spiritual sons of Abraham. But he was the biological father to this man. It's obviously that Jesus has the Jews and in particular the Pharisees in his scope. It also shows us how desperate the unbeliever upon his death is for mercy. He's crying out for mercy. There is a conscious torment crying out for mercy. And yet, this request is denied because there is no mercy for the unbeliever after he or she dies. No mercy. Notice in verse 25, But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like matter bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, it's the only place this is found in the Bible, that word, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. A fixed chasm. I mean, this is horrifying language. What is he referring to here? Upon your death, there is no second chances. There is no post-mortem opportunity. Now, if that doesn't fit your view of God, your view of God is too low. You have to allow the Word of God to chasten your faulty, low view. Okay? It may not fit your palate, your spiritual palate. But the reason it may not fit your spiritual palate is because your palate has been fallen. Your palate is fallen and broken by sin. That's why we need the Word of God. All of our, every single one of us, our view of God is too low. Apart from the Bible, our view of God is, sounds more like Santa Claus than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no post-mortem opportunities. There is no post-mortem evangelism. Now, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, if that doesn't provoke repentance in you, what will? What will? Didn't you hear what James Joyce had to say about eternity? Don't you see here, there is a fixed chasm. And for the believer, if this does not provoke evangelism, what will? If this doesn't provoke missions to the nations, what will? If it does not provoke heartfelt, desperate prayer for the lost, what will? Monday nights we come here and we cry out to God for the lost. Because there is a fixed chasm. And if that is not what is driving you, you don't truly believe this. 
This is serious language. This is sobering language. And this former rich man gets the point. He gets the point very clear. Notice in verses 27 and 28. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. It's the second time the word torment is used there. Is If hell is the permanent prison, and hell is going to be that final place upon judgment, then this place called Hades is the temporary jail, and both places are places of torment. Now, for the first time, it appears the former rich man has interest, shows interest in others. He's showing interest in his brother's. Though he's sticking to his own, doesn't he? I mean, he's, just, he's not really concerned about anyone else. He's just concerned about his family. And I, I think that reminds us that there's nothing particularly noble about being a family man. That's your mere duty. Even the unbeliever can be a family man. There's nothing particularly noble about being a family man if the rest of the world is inconsequential to you. Even this self-absorbed person in his condemned state is concerned about his family. And apparently his five brothers share the same philosophy of life that he did. And know what he doesn't say. Boy, I'll be glad when my brothers get here and we're going to have one big party. It's going to make Mardi Gras... Look like a Girl Scout convention. You ever heard people talk like that? I want to go to hell. That's where all my friends are going to be. Listen to me. Hell is not New Year's Eve. Hell is not spring break for the college student. There will be no community in hell. Mark Twain famously said, I'll take heaven for the climate... And hell for society. That's the way people think. There will be no society in hell. Utter darkness. Utter, utter torment. And this man now knows this. He knows it. He probably didn't believe it, but now he knows it. And he begs Abraham to, to send Lazarus to go warn them. But Abraham tells him that a warning would not be effective. It's not going to be effective at all. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This plea is also denied. Or perhaps better said, this, it's not so much denied as it's said to be unnecessary. It's an unnecessary uh, plea. Because Abraham is saying there's only one thing that can prevent your brothers from experiencing the same fate that you have. And that is their refusal to hear the word of God. This is one of the great texts that demonstrate the sufficiency of Scripture. The word of God is sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for growth and godliness. It's sufficient... To teach us how we can hallow the name of God. 
The Word is all anyone needs. The Word is sufficient to show us our sin and misery. The Word is sufficient to show us the holiness of God, the standard of God. And that we have all fallen short of that standard. We are all sinners. We are all lawbreakers. And we stand condemned underneath the wrath of God. You say, that doesn't sound like the God I serve. My God is all love. Well, that's not a very loving God who would allow crimes to go. Imagine this Ariel Castro kept three women in, in a torturous state for ten years. Imagine the judge saying, I'm having a good day. Just... Go home and enjoy your family. Is that a loving judge? No. That's a corrupt judge. He would lose his bench. It's loving to judge crimes. And the Bible teaches us that God's judgment is on the wicked every day. But God in His grace, God in His mercy, God in His wisdom has devised a plan where He can be just and yet justify the sinner. By sending his son as the substitute. Who lived the life we could not live. Who died the death we deserve. God's anger and judgment was poured out on him for sinners. And God raised him from the grave for our justification. The Bible is sufficient to teach us these things. And that's what Abraham is telling this man. This man doesn't agree. He doesn't agree that the Bible, the word of God is sufficient. Note the... The objection. He thinks the word isn't enough. They need a miraculous sign. Verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, at first glance, uh, this doesn't seem unreasonable. Because when you think about someone being raised from the dead, you think about, first and foremost, Jesus, who was raised from the grave. This sounds like the gospel. But this is not what the rich man had in mind. That's not what he has in mind at all. The fact is, this man had no love for the Word of God. He was a man of unbelief. He was not a believer. And he knew his brothers well enough to know they had the same apathy and unbelief towards the word of God. They didn't believe and love the word. But what if God showed them a sign? Surely they would believe if God would just show them a sign. That's his argument with Abraham. But Abraham knows better. Look in verse 31. We close out the text. He said to him, They do not hear Moses and the prophets. Now, what are, who is Moses? Well, he wrote the first five books. It's called the, the Torah, the law. Okay? Genesis to Deuteronomy. So when we talk about Moses, that's who we're talking about. And who are the prophets? That's kind of a, a, a word that represents the rest of the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament here. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Luke is writing this after the fact, after Jesus had indeed been raised from the grave. And it's a veiled reference to the religious leaders who are presently rejecting all the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah. Because they're rejecting Jesus, the one in whom these prophecies pointed to. 
And they will continue to reject him even when he rises from the dead. And I think Luke gives us some insights here into the nature of unbelief. You don't believe because you lack evidence. Or you don't disbelieve because you lack evidence. It's never a lack of evidence. That's not the problem. The problem is you love your sin. Romans 1 makes very clear that the evidence God does give us, we exchange for a lie. Because although we know Him as God, we do not honor Him as God. We do not glorify Him as God, nor are we thankful. In short, if you don't believe God's Word, then you won't believe the God of the Word. If you don't believe God's Word, you won't believe God's works. And don't we see that in history? Jesus did raise a man named Lazarus from the grave, a different Lazarus. And it says in the same chapter, after he raised him from the dead, they plotted to kill him. And then when Jesus himself was raised from the grave, Matthew 28, the ones who had crucified him devised a plan to cover up his resurrection. We don't need more proof. Jesus is saying, if your heart is cold to the word of God, you will be cold to everything God does. And this is a matter of life and death. Churches are filled with people who never read their Bibles. They have a perverted understanding of grace. Well, I don't need to read my Bible. We're saved by grace. Bible, if you, if you say that, well, no one's saying reading your Bible is going to save you. Reading your Bible is the evidence I've been saved. I now have a new disposition to the Word. It's the fruit of my regeneration. It's the fruit of my new birth. I now have a new love for the Word. This is the Word of life. If you really believe this is the Word of life, you'll read it. And the fact that I don't read it shows that I don't really believe that. That's not to say you're not saved, but it means you're in a very spiritually unhealthy place. And it may be that you're not saved. The proof that you're born again is you have a new disposition to God. These Pharisees had completely misunderstood everything. There's only two kinds of people. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. That's what this text is telling us. What are the takeaways here? The first takeaway is this. If you see yourself in the rich man today, repent of your sins and do what Jesus tells you to do. John 5, 24, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, Who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Believe the word of Christ. Believe that he's the Messiah. Believe that he died on the cross to pay for the sins of those who turned their back on God. Who was raised from the grave for our pardon. Believe that and you will be saved. Repent and believe. Another takeaway here, God isn't pleased with self-indulgence. He's not pleased with self-indulgent lives. It's a foolish thing to set your affections 
on things that will be crushed in the end. That we, we have a gnat's a gnat breath time on earth. Think about that. If you live 70, 80, 90, 100 years, that's a gnat's breath time in light of eternity. It's a foolish thing to live for self. In fact, one of the evidences that you've been saved is that you no longer live for self. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Christ died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died on the cross and rose again for their sake. You know, one reason that this parable is important is that we all have the capacity to delude ourselves. If I were to ask you, do you love, do you worship money? I don't think anybody in here would say, yes, I'm, I'm this rich man. I worship money. I worship myself. I live for myself. Sin has a way to deceive us. And that's why Jesus tells us this parable. That's why he tells us this parable. But here's the most crucial question. If you see yourself as selfish, if you see yourself self-absorbed, how do you get past that? You don't just decide one day to be unselfish. Well, and, he, and not even hell is enough. The, the fear of hell is enough to root out the selfishness. It's, it's just too deeply rooted. What will root out the selfishness of a self-absorbed self-worshipper? There's only one thing. There's only one remedy. And have your heart melted. It's the only remedy. Nothing will ever cure a selfish heart but an experiential, heart-melting knowledge of Jesus' redeeming blood. That's the whole point of this gospel. It's the good news. It's the only thing that's going to root out selfishness. It's to have your heart melted by what God has done for you in Christ. And now experientially knowing what He has done for you. Jesus paid it all. Now all to Him we owe. There is nothing He could ask for us, from us that is too great. The only remedy is to go to the cross. Go to the cross if you want to be delivered from the enslavement of self-worship. Go see what price He paid for your soul. And that's why John would say in John, our first John 4, this is love. Because he knows only love can change your heart. Only love can, can melt your heart. If you're living selfishly, it's because you haven't been melted. He says, this is love. Not that you love God, but he loved you and sent his son a propitiation for your sins. In other words, while you were acting rebellious and wicked and you were under the sentence of death like this rich man, God penalized your sin in the substitute. John understands that's the only thing that will change your heart. If you haven't had your heart changed, you can... Cry out to God and say, God, open my eyes to behold your glory in your son Jesus. And he'll answer that prayer. Or maybe you're a believer here today and you recognize, I've gotten back into a selfish state. I'm not living for the kingdom. As evidenced by the fact that my resources aren't being used for the kingdom. And I want to repent today. Whatever the need is, God will answer that prayer if you will call out in repentance. Let's pray.